I was 11 years old when World War II broke out. I can remember his mum getting us up in the night to go into the air raid shelters. And the bombs dropping and Dad was outside. He was an air, air raid warden. These bombers used to come over and it was like a drone, you know, heavy drone. Sometimes we were in there all night. I grew up in London and Luton. Well, I remember seeing now and again aircraft and lots of contrails, the odd parachute. Um, my mother wouldn't let me go out to watch it because it was so dangerous with the metal falling from the sky. My first memories of the Battle of Britain was standing up in my bedroom window, watching the searchlights over Bristol and caught in the searchlights was a bomber from Germany and it was being blasted. I can remember as kids, if we knew of a plane had come down somewhere, we'd go out as fast as we could to try and see it, try and collect bits of shrapnel and stuff, just as souvenirs, as, as we did in those days. There was this big wool shop and um, they received a direct hit from a landmine come down on a parachute, you know. And the next morning when we looked, we went out, next door but one had this massive girder in their French windows, come over from this wall shop. Oh yes, it got part of one of the worst bombed places there was. Because it, um, it was a port hull, and it was busy, you know, taking stuff in and out. and. You could see things burning in the distance, yeah. You could see fires burning. My father was a truck driver in those days, and he happened to be in the docks, Royal Albert docks, when it was bombed. And they were all trying to move the sugar and the paint and all the stuff out of the way <laughs> to stop it all going up. And we could see the docks, the glow in the sky from the fires in the docks. When the threat of invasion in the Second World War came along, they, they wanted experienced people. And as my father had had his experience in the First World War, they uh, promoted him or gave him the rank of a musketry sergeant, which meant that uh, he was in charge of training all the people with arms, etc. And we had a cupboard up under the stairs at home, and uh, there was all manner of arms in there. We had hand grenades, we had bayonets, we had rifles. I remember chopping up firewood to, to, to light the fire at home with, with a bayonet, and I got a clip behind the ears for spoiling the edge on, on, on a bayonet from my father for that. First air raid, it was shocking, because when we went back to our household, the windows were smashed in. Everything was all, you know, scattered about, and, and it was pretty grim. I was very frightened. I just think we were tremendously lucky, <laughs> you know. Hello and welcome to The World That Wasn't. Those were the voices of just a few who faced the threat of invasion in 1940. Individuals that lived through the uncertain days of air raids, dogfights and bombing that was the Battle of Britain. 
Now, before we go any further, we need to point out that this isn't the normal format of our podcast. No, this is a companion piece to episode one where we explore listeners' reactions to the previous show. In this case, what if Germany had won the Battle of Britain? So if you haven't listened to episode one, stop right now and listen to it. Because this is a Skull Session on that episode. And Jamie, why did we choose the name Skull Sessions? Well, because it's a freaking badass name. And also because this episode is basically a mind meld with our listeners and other alternate history fans to see what you guys are theorizing on the subjects that we discuss. So a Skull Session is an actual thing. Um, We didn't just make it up. Uh, The dictionary definition is... A discussion or conference, especially to discuss policies, tactics and manoeuvres, which is rather fitting, I think. Now, as we may have mentioned, the research for each episode in the historic period is pretty intensive. So we want to squeeze at least one more episode out of each topic. And it also gives us a chance to examine some of your theories and ideas. Yeah, we're we're trying to get more miles to the gallon with this show, if at all possible. (laughs) While we did receive an amazing amount of support for episode one, thank you to everyone, we didn't get much in the way of uh, alt theories and suggestions, which is perfectly understandable considering it was our first episode. Well, I'd like to think that was because we completely nailed it, uh, James. But in having read some of the back and forth on various sites and message boards, I know that in the realm of alternate history, this just isn't possible. Um, We're quite a contentious bunch. So everybody's got a point of view Uh, And that's the beauty of the what-if mindset, I think. It entertains all sorts of scenarios and eventualities. Everyone has an opinion based on a specific fact or insight. Um, There's a million ways it could go. The truth is that it's very easy with hindsight to imagine that these outcomes are inevitable, that history moves down a path of least resistance. Events resolve themselves in the most logical fashion. But that simply isn't the case, and you only need to pick up a history book to prove it. I mean, the fact that the Germans conquered France in just over a month is testament to that. I mean, who could have predicted Guderian's ballsy push to cut the Allied forces in two in May 1940? Well, not his superiors, that's for sure. They told him to halt after German forces crossed the River Meuse. But it's these decisive moments uh, that prove in history there are individuals that are willing to risk everything to win big. And sometimes history hangs on a gamble. These are the moments we find so tantalising in alternate history because it's around these split-second decisions where history hangs in the balance and we get to play our game of what if. So sit back and get ready to scour the boards to see what you think would happen if the Germans won the Battle of Britain. What if Nazi Germany won the Battle of Britain? What if Babe Ruth wasn't traded to the Yankees? What if the 300 were routed at Thermopylae? What if China had discovered the new world? The world that wasn't. An alternate history podcast. For all the amazing stories of bravery and heroism surrounding the Battle of Britain, we don't often stop to examine the bigger questions about the campaign. What were the Germans really hoping to achieve, and was it even possible? At first glance, the whole idea seems pretty straightforward. Take out your final remaining adversary, employ the same blitzkrieg tactics that won you France and Poland. But the problem is, 
Britain is an island with the most powerful navy in the world at the time. And the Germans just lost a substantial portion of their navy during the invasion of Norway. The point that a lot of folks uh, come back to on the boards is whether winning air superiority over Britain would actually make any difference to the outcome of the war. Um, And was it even possible with the technology of the day? The range of German bombers and fighters, that sort of thing. And say they did manage to gain air superiority. Would they even consider launching the somewhat contentious Operation Sea Lion? So let's take a look at the boards uh, and see what you're saying about the likelihood of the Luftwaffe winning the Battle of Britain. I think this post by, what do you, how do you say that, Lotloff, L-O-T-L-O-F, on alternatehistory.com sums it up pretty nicely. He says, Assuming that winning the Battle of Britain means driving the RAF to its northern airfields and securing air superiority over southern England, the Germans will be in a position to continue daylight bombing over London and the rest of southern England. They will be able to interdict all naval traffic in the Channel. They will be able to retard the British bombing campaign over Germany and Europe. They will be able to force the British to commit greater resources to defend the home islands, lessening what will be available for North Africa and the Pacific. They will not be able to force the British to the peace table. They will not be in a position to completely blockade the British Isles and starve them out. They will not be able to completely destroy the RAF, so that maintaining air superiority will come at a continued cost. They will not be able to wreck Britain's industrial base, though they will be able to cause it greater damage than in our timeline. In short, winning the air battle would be a great victory for the Germans. No two ways about it. It would, however, not be a war winner. And if Germany carried out Operation Barbarossa in 1941, most of the Luftwaffe would be sent east and the control over British skies would promptly be lost. I think this underlying sentiment is the reason a lot of uh, alternate history fans are so skeptical about the chances of Operation Sea Lion ever being launched. There are just too many giant hurdles that the Germans would have to overcome. However, we should point out... um... (laughs) (laughs) that it does seem to be one of those threads that stirs up a lot of emotion on the boards. I mean, it can get pretty crazy. Like this comment from Michelle when asked to discuss the circumstances for Operation Sea Lion succeeding. You should define success, as in getting some troops ashore. Well, that might happen. But in that case, the direction they would take is a couple of miles inland, obviously. And they would be quite unlikely to get beyond that. Or success, as in... The plan goes like clockwork, and all the British servicemen in all arms and branches play dead. Or this cutting response from the Irish Dreamer on AlternateHistory.com. Now, be prepared. We're going for authentic accents here on The World That Wasn't. Well, this could get pretty sketchy. Sea Lion succeeding belongs in ASB. Because even if the British fight like complete idiots and the Germans like warlord geniuses, the logistics aren't there to maintain a structured invasion. The hair can get ashore, they just can't supply said forces after a few days as the Royal Navy will flood the channel after any such landing. Okay, ASB, for those of you who don't know the acronym, stands for Alien Space Bats. No kidding. So, yeah, we found the exact definition on althistorywiki.com. Yes, there is an alt history wiki. Um, and uh, the exact definition reads something like this. The alien space bats are creatures that make possible things that would be implausible from little changes in our timeline. For example, alien space bats have mind control powers to make leaders and their advisors, staff and followers to take decisions they would never have taken if sane. 
They can also swap people's territories and objects, including you, between places at a given time or even across time. For example, they can send the contemporary island of Nantucket hundreds of years in the past, as in Island in the Sea of Time, or insert your brain into one of a historical figure, as in you wake up as Napoleon the day before Waterloo. <laughs> so basically alien space bats, not good. Um, makes for poorly thought out alternate history. It's like when we take contemporary values and impose them on figures from a different era. It just doesn't work. Anyway, as you can tell from the comments, there's a lot of disdain uh, for the idea that Operation Sea Lion was even feasible. Yeah, it's pretty hilarious that now the alternate history community at large thinks it's so preposterous that they won't even mention it by name. Instead, they give it names like Operation Sea Monkey or Operation Sea Mammal, the sea mammal that should not be named, or Operation Pinniped, which is, I don't know, Latin for sea lion? The general consensus on all the boards is um, it's it's not it's not worthy of of debating in terms of alternate history, but they seem to uh, debate it ad nauseum. So, and of course, we're relatively new at this, so we, we we had to make a we had to make a run at it anyway. Exactly, and we're not ones to run from a good challenge. And there are some that feel that if an invasion were even possible, it would have needed to happen earlier, capitalising on the chaos in Britain after Dunkirk and before the British had had a chance to regroup and resupply. In this excerpt from Samuel Mitchum's Eagles of the Third Reich, we get some really interesting insight into what was happening in the German high command at the time. Even the state secretary at the time, Erhard Milch, felt that it was imperative to strike at Britain while the iron was hot and set out a plan to do just that. Take a listen. Early on the morning of June 5th, 1940, the day after the evacuation of Dunkirk ended, Erhard Milch walked along the beach near the city with Major General Otto Hoffmann von Waldau, the caustic but extremely capable chief of the operations branch of the general staff of the Luftwaffe. Waldo was in an expansive mood. Waving his arms across the horizon, Waldau exclaimed, Here is the grave of the British hopes in this war. Then, prodding a bottle with the toe of his boot, he contemptuously added, And these are the gravestones. General Milch was more thoughtful. They are not buried yet, he muttered. He was hatching a plan in his mind. We have no time to waste, he said suddenly. Later that day, the state secretary showed up at a command conference held aboard Goring's armored train, Asia, his temporary command post. The jubilant Goring told Milch, Kesselring, Spiro, Stumpf, and Jeschanik that the British army had been wiped out at Dunkirk. Milch corrected him. He had been to Dunkirk and had not seen more than 20 or 30 dead British soldiers. He strongly advised that the Luftwaffe launch the invasion of Britain without delay. I warn you, Airfield Marshal, the deputy commander of the Luftwaffe concluded, if you give the English three or four weeks to recoup, it'll be too late. Momentarily crestfallen, Goring's initial reaction was negative. It can't be done, he said tersely. But as the conversation continued, he was won over to Milch's point of view. The state secretary presented a compelling argument. He proposed an immediate invasion of Great Britain, supported by the second and third air fleets, even before France was finished off. The paratroopers could seize a few critical airfields in southern England, and then army units could be ferried over by the air transports. At the moment, the RAF and the British Army, which had lost all of its heavy equipment at Dunkirk, were too weak to intervene successfully. As the conversation continued, Goring became convinced that Milch was right. 
The next day, the Iron One went to the village of Brule le Peche, Belgium, and presented a plan to the Fuhrer for the invasion of Britain. The plan was a good one. Even Adolf Hitler appreciated its merits. However, he did not think it was necessary. Surely the Fuhrer had decided. Even the stubborn British Prime Minister Churchill would recognize that the war was lost, rather than subject his homeland to the ravages of a hopeless war. His orders to Goring were simple, do nothing. When Melch heard the order, he was furious. Couldn't the Fuhrer see that this plan might be the only chance Germany would have to defeat the British and win the war? Dramatic stuff. And Milch wasn't someone to be taken lightly. This is someone who was instrumental in establishing the Luftwaffe under Goering and was promoted shortly after the fall of France to the rank of field marshal. Then there's this other book we found by Robert Maxey, who himself served in the British Army in World War II. He had his own theory of how Germany could have pulled it off in his 1980 book, Invasion. Here's how he saw it going down. Hit the sound effects. June 9-13th. The Luftwaffe prepares the way for the land-borne invasion of Great Britain. After five days of intensive bombing focused on airfields and communication centers, German attacks begin to interrupt the RAF's intricate network of operations in southeast England. Wave after wave of bombers and fighters blacken the skies, outnumbering the Royal Air Force five to one. Meanwhile, in the seas, the Kriegsmarine begin their own preparations, secretly clearing Royal Navy mines at night and replacing them with a dense protective minefield either side of a narrow invasion passage across the Pas de Calais, a cold strip of seawater only 20 miles wide. June 14th, S Day. The land invasion begins in earnest. Special glider-borne units, paratroopers and JU-88s take out vital gun battery positions along the coast. Like the attack on the Belgian fort of Ebenemail two months before, these precision strikes disable important coastal defences, leaving the beaches open to assault from the sea. The RAF strikes back, scrambling all available planes to harry the ramshackle flotilla of barges and transports. But the Luftwaffe are quick to respond, and soon a vicious dogfight of over 3,000 aircraft rage above the English Channel. With the big British guns silenced, the Kriegsmarine are able to land their panzers on the accessible beaches of Hythe, while paratroopers create makeshift landing strips further inland to bring in the heavy artillery. These weapons secure a valuable toehold, allowing the Germans to position their seaward guns on both coasts to hamper any Royal Navy activity in the Straits. Freshly landed infantry divisions begin their slow advance up the beaches. Seasick from the crossings, they come under heavy fire from dug-in British troops. However, the inexperienced British, undersupplied and undertrained, cannot withstand the combined assaults from paratroop units, infantry and panzers. And the Germans push further north and east to take important positions between Hythe and Dover. Meanwhile, disruption of the communication networks by the initial attacks hamper British efforts to muster a response. Conflicting reports from diversionary tactics compound the confusion. Hounded relentlessly from the air, the Royal Navy elect to wait for the main force to arrive from Scapa Flow in northern Scotland. 
By the time they are ready to mount an attack in the early morning hours of July 15th, the element of surprise is gone. However, they are able to inflict casualties on the German flotilla, putting a brief respite on activities in the Straits. The victory is short-lived. As dawn breaks, the air attacks begin again, and with casualties growing and ammunition running low, the Royal Navy are forced to retreat to the relative safety of their ports outside the invasion zone. German paratroopers capture the airfield at Lympne, and with it, Royal Air Force plans containing detailed information on the running of Fighter Command. Realizing what they have, the Germans change their tactics the next day to focus bombing raids on radar stations and airfields, severely damaging RAF capabilities and leaving the Royal Navy with minimal air cover in the Straits. Meanwhile, disruption of the communication networks by the initial attacks means the British are slow to muster a decisive response. July 15th. Frustrated by the lack of progress, Churchill, against his general's advice, sends his best tank units, the 1st Armoured Division, to try and break through the German lines and drive back the invaders. British tanks push ahead to engage German forces, but separated from infantry support units and vital artillery are then set upon by German 8mm anti-tank guns. Counter-attacks by panzers inflict 40% losses on the already dwindling British tanks. After the infantry's promising start, they fail to seize the initiative that could have tipped the battle in their favour and on the night of July 15th are forced to drop back to the GHQ line, a fortified defensive position along the River Medway that protects Britain's industrial heartland. After crushing blows to its infrastructure, Dowding concedes the southeast airfields to the enemy, reporting that the RAF can no longer shield English cities if they are to support sea and land battles. July 17th. Repeated runs by the Royal Navy temporarily disrupt the German crossings, but each attack comes at a steep cost in casualties and equipment. Without consistent air cover, their ships are pounded relentlessly from the air, coastal guns on both sides of the channel, and threatened by the dense minefields replenished each night by the Kriegsmarine. Churchill makes the difficult decision to bring back Force H to defend the homeland, conceding the Mediterranean to the Italians. But in the time it takes to get them back, the situation on the ground and air has deteriorated to such an extent that they face a hopeless struggle. The GHQ line is in tatters. Initially broken by Rommel's 5th Armoured Division at Maidstone, it's only a matter of time before the beleaguered forces of the British Army are driven back, undermined by failing lines of communication, lack of ammunition and leadership. Like at the Meurs in France, the Panzer's breakout inflicts a decisive blow, dividing British forces and laying the industrial heart of Britain open to attack. By the time Churchill replaces his Commander-in-Chief of Home Forces, General Edmund Ironside, with the younger, more vibrant General Alan Brooke, the game is lost, and all they can do is plan a more timely exit strategy. By July 22nd, Britain is lost. Churchill and the Royal Family take what remains of the Royal Navy to continue the fight from their colonies in the Bahamas leaving a puppet government headed by Sir Oswald Mosley and retired Major General J.F.C. Fuller. 
I mean, it's an interesting idea, plausible, right? But it really underplays the power of the Royal Navy. And at the end of the book, Maxie writes, Readers must judge for themselves if the July invasion would have succeeded. Let it be simply stated that in the considered appreciation of the British chiefs as staff of the day, that was the really dangerous period. The one moment when Hitler might have pulled it off. I mean, the premise of the book relies on the British being uh, unprepared for an invasion, which I, I totally get. It makes complete sense. But there's a bit of a logic gap here for me because, I mean, sure, the British would be in a state of chaos after Dunkirk, trying to reorganise and replenish um, their resources. But so would the Germans. Um, I mean, gathering all the barges to transport troops and equipment, um, repositioning the Kriegsmarine after their losses in Norway. I mean, they hadn't even won the battle for France yet, let alone the battle in Norway. And they would have had to have started planning Sea Lion way earlier before they even knew the outcome in France, um, which would have been extremely optimistic, I think. And this goes against reports that even, you know, during the Dunkirk evacuation, Hitler was suspicious. Um, I think he was expecting some kind of French and British counterattack because um, he really just couldn't believe his luck. Right. He was expecting a lot longer fight. I, I think even he couldn't predict the way it would go down. He probably wasn't thinking that much beyond France at this point. Factfinder on strategypage.com makes this comment. Unfortunately, when Maxi wrote his rather silly and implausible book, he seems not to have known that at a meeting with Hitler, Keitel, and Jodl on the 20th of June 1940, Raider reported that the German Navy had no suitable vessels capable of transporting an invasion force, but that it was hoped that 45 barges could be made available within the next two weeks. It would have been a very narrow, narrow front indeed. Or well, this review on Amazon.co.uk by G. Van Goylunken. Goylunken? Gelunken. Gelukin. Gelukin, there you go. Entertaining, but in reality it took the Germans with maximum effort until the end of September 1940 to create and assemble something resembling an invasion fleet and carry out other essential preparations. By launching the invasion on the 13th of July, Maxi shaves a good 10 weeks off the already inadequate preparation time. And by having the vessels arrive in the channel ports in the nick of time, he implicitly admits that in his scenario, the troops involved would have no training in amphibious operations at all which seems a clear invitation to disaster. Also, an initial landing of just two divisions on such a narrow front and largely up against steep cliffs would have been relatively easy to contain. Even in July, it should not have been beyond the capabilities of the British Army to bring up sufficient troops and artillery to do that. Never mind the state the First Armoured Division was in. As other reviewers have noted, Maxi is a bit shaky on the naval aspects. He makes much of the German minefields, but does not explain when, how, and by what ships these were supposed to have been laid. In reality, since mine laying would have to take place at night when the Royal Navy clearly had the upper hand in the channel, it never even started, to any significant extent. He also doesn't explain how the Germans are supposed to bring whole armoured divisions across without suitable landing craft or access to a working port. In the German plans, as they had evolved by the end of September, the first wave consisted of nine infantry-slash-mountain divisions, with just four battalions of submersible-slash-swimming tanks in support. In the most optimistic German scenario, German armoured divisions could begin to land at about S plus 10. 
Maxi envisages a steep stream of supplies, but disregards the fact that the laborious unloading of a freighter into lighters would take 48 hours, according to the German estimations, meaning that turnaround time for such a ship would be a week or so, providing that Britain did not interfere in any way, of course. And one more by R.A. Forzik, I believe it's Forzik, on Amazon.com. A well-written hypothetical account on what if the German Wehrmacht had launched Operation Sea Lion right after the fall of France. In this version, the Germans land two infantry divisions near Dover and drop the 7th Airborne Division. In short, the British counterattack fails, the Germans land their armor, and British resistance collapses after about two weeks. Maxi includes good military detail, but he tends to portray most British actions as half-hearted or inept. The sea battles go far too well for the Germans, and the Royal Navy doesn't put in a good effort. The whole concept of a German invasion of England resides in accepting that the Germans could cross the English Channel in face of a desperate British resistance. Unfortunately, Maxi doesn't really convince the reader that the Kriegsmarine could do this. Maxi is a former army officer, and the parts coming ground operations are the best, but the Navy chapters are weak. Logistic issues are glossed over. Interesting, but far-fetched. All this being said, I think it was a very fun read. You know, we sometimes get caught up in military tactics, but really fail to appreciate, I think, the, the emotional uh, resonance of, of alternate history. For me, Maxi lays out an interesting scenario that, was, that, that I really felt, you know. However he got there, I felt genuinely concerned with a, with a Britain under invasion. Um, maybe it's because it's my home, but either way, you know, fun speculation. But we don't have to speculate. We actually found out from BattleshipDiscussions.com that they did a test at Royal Military Academy Sandhurst in 1974. This was a war game set up by a British newspaper, the Daily Telegraph, and run by British military theorist and historian Dr. Patty Griffith. So here's what Mark L. Bailey wrote on BattleshipDiscussions.com. In 1975, Sea Lion was war-gamed at Sandhurst with General Adolf Galland being the Luftwaffe advisor, Admiral Frederick Rouge being the Kriegsmarine advisor, Air Chief Marshal Christopher Foxley Norris being the RAF advisor, etc. Basically, they realised it was the last chance to get the men who were really there on both sides. Rouge was a sea line planner, and uh, really work out what would have occurred. It took years to set up using the real British and German archival material. Boy, did the Germans get hammered in 1940. The main problem the Germans face is that A, the Luftwaffe has not yet won air supremacy, B, the possible invasion dates are constrained by the weather and tides for high water attacks, and C, it is taken until late September to assemble the necessary shipping. Boy, you gotta love these accents we're bringing here. Anyway, here's a breakdown of what happened at the Sandhurst War Game. The German attack was launched at dawn on the 22nd of September 1940 and consisted of 8,000 airborne troops and 80,000 infantry landed in amphibious operations. Um, the attack and landings went reasonably well for the first 24 hours, although the Germans lost about 25% of their unseaworthy barges, which were being used to ferry the forces across the channel. During this 24-hour period, the Royal Air Force lost 237 aircraft, which was about 23% of its fighting strength. Um, the Luftwaffe losses amounted to 333, also around 23% of its aircraft. Uh, naval engagements were indecisive at this stage, as the Royal Navy was still assembling its main destroyer fleet to attack. 
The larger ships of the home fleet, including battleships, heavy cruisers and aircraft carriers, were not to be committed due to the risks of air attack. So even without air supremacy, the Germans were able to re-establish a beachhead in England using a minefield screen in the English Channel to protect the initial landings from the Royal Navy. However, after a few days, the Royal Navy were able to cut off supply lines from the German beachhead, isolating them and forcing their surrender. Over the next two days, the Germans managed to advance a dozen or so miles inland and even capture the port of Folkestone. Uh, but the docks have been thoroughly demolished by the British, rendering the ports more or less unusable. However, the German advance halted once the British and Commonwealth forces were moved to fully engage in the battle. Um, at this stage, the Germans had few tanks and only light artillery. An increasing shortage uh, of ammunition was slowly forcing them back towards the sea. The Germans asked Hitler if the bombing of London could stop and the aircraft used to attack British ships instead. The request was denied. Um, and it dawned on the 24th of September, the second German landing, which was to take tanks and heavy artillery, as well as supplies and men, was intercepted by the Royal Navy's destroyers, and 65% of the barges were sunk. After this, the German surrender was inevitable. The conclusion, the German Navy's relative weakness, combined with the Luftwaffe's lack of air supremacy, meant it was not able to prevent the Royal Navy from interfering with the planned channel crossings. The Navy's destruction of the second invasion wave prevented resupply and reinforcement of the landed troops, as well as the arrival of more artillery and tanks. This made the position of the initially successful invasion force untenable. It suffered further casualties during the attempted evacuation. Of the 90,000 German troops who landed, only 15,400 returned to France. 33,000 were taken prisoner, 26,000 were killed in the fighting, and 15,000 drowned in the English Channel. All six umpires deemed the invasion a resounding failure. So there's this weird thing uh, that I don't really get about the war game. Okay, so let's, let me get this straight. The German generals asked for the Luftwaffe bombers to stop bombing London and instead use them on the Royal Navy ships, right? But Hitler says no, and I, I guess I don't really get that. You know, why would he say no? Because, you know, bombing London at that point wasn't really going to help the invasion force in any significant way. Yeah, I found that a little puzzling as well. I, I'm not sure why they had Hitler give that response. Uh, maybe it was like a Hitler wild card. <laughs> yep, random fewer craziness like the, the pause at Dunkirk. Well, it's like those dice you get. You can get those dice, you know, with all the different things that you, you can possibly do. If you, if you don't know what to do that evening, you roll the dice and it tells you. You know, maybe they have one of those for Hitler, you know, invade Poland, launch Operation Sea Lion, that kind of thing. And, and according to our friend Fact Finder on uh, strategypage.com, they also didn't use the exact Royal Navy dispositions in the war game. Here's what he says. In the pre-planning, it became obvious that had the actual Royal Navy dispositions been applied to the exercise, then it was unlikely in the extreme that any organized German forces would have reached shore at all. Consequently, as the whole idea of the game was to bring about a land battle in southern England, this was at Sandhurst after all, the bulk of the Royal Navy forces were moved back in order to give the landing forces a window of opportunity to get ashore. In the real September of 1940, there were in the region of 70 Royal Navy destroyers and cruisers within six hours of the Dover Straits, together with several hundred smaller auxiliaries ranging from sloops and minesweepers to gunboats, armed trawlers and armed yachts. Yeah, the Germans took some serious punishment during that war game. 
Well, you're not wrong there, Jamie. And I feel like if they tried this in reality with the casualties that they actually took in the game and the effects that it would have on morale, I think it would have seriously hampered their ability uh, to push into Russia a year later. Uh, it was the sort of battle that if you lose, you lose big. Um, I think it would have been quite a gamble. Um, and maybe that's why they didn't, uh, why the Germans never really attempted it and instead, you know, took the age old Russian gambit in 1941 and following uh, Napoleon's infamous footsteps. History repeats itself again. So the realities of Sea Lion coming off are pretty slim, but I keep coming back to the writings of General Edmund Ironside. In 1940, he thought that a German invasion was possible, in fact probable, and as general of the home forces, he knew England's defences better than anyone. So if he thought there was a chance, then there must have been a cause for concern. Admittedly, he didn't know um, the hopeless state of the German plans to cross the channel in these uh, makeshift barges, but hey... There is actually a really great three-part mini-series by the BBC on the Dunkirk evacuation, um, simply titled Dunkirk, um, and you can find the link on our website. More than any other dramatisation that I've seen, this series really captures the chaos and uncertainty of that particular part of the war uh, perfectly. I mean, it's really easy to see why the English were so concerned that an invasion might be coming uh, on the heels of a panic retreat like that. Well, whether Britain comes to the table or not, I think uh, Hitler was fine to just keep Britain contained while he focused on, you know, his ultimate objective in the East. Now, this decision, of course, would later come back and bite him in the ass. Anyway, you can check out all of our research documents and images on our website, theworldthatwasn't.com. Next time, it's JFK, What If The Bullet Had Missed. We hope you've enjoyed this skull session. Before we go, we wanted to thank a few people. Big thanks to my grandmother, Marjorie Williams. Thanks, Nan. And uh, my great uncle, Roy. Also, Bernard Childs for sharing their memories on the Battle of Britain. And of course, our wives for their support and research assistance. Well, it's a family effort here at The World That Wasn't. Until next time, I'll be the same, or should we say, cheerio. Cheerio.